Thank you for coming to Dallas. I want to welcome you to our 2019 conference. The rest of the week, we're going to hear from people who've demonstrated valor in different circumstances. This is a man named Josh Kwan. He leads a conference called The Gathering. I found it while trying to understand the people and money behind the anti-trans hate machine. Now, I know that The Gathering sounds like something out of a Stephen King novel, but it's actually an annual convening where there are panels and fancy dinners. But unlike other conferences, to be here, you need to be someone who gives a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to Christian causes. But that's not a surprise. That's because The Gathering is the Davos of the Christian right, coming together of billionaires and millionaires with an extreme religious ideology. Wealth is not new, obviously. Charity's not new. But the idea of using private wealth imaginatively, constructively, and systematically to attack fundamental problems of mankind is new. And that's what I would call impact investing at this point. As I was watching videos on their website, It struck me that everyone at the gathering looks like they could be at any wealthy country club in America. But at this club, religious extremism is on the menu. The gathering is uh, a concentrated group of high-capacity, kingdom-driven individuals uh, that um, the gathering enables me to connect with those folks Um, to share best practices and ideas uh, and to to be there as friends and to build uh, real authentic relationships. Kingdom driven. That's a phrase that keeps coming up at The Gathering and more broadly in my research on the far Christian right. It's everywhere. Kingdom driven basically means rich people trying to infuse Christian fundamentalist values through every aspect of our society. And the people at this conference have the kind of wealth needed to bring about this religious world in which we would all be forced to live. The gathering attracts some of the biggest and most influential people in America. One particular person from one particular family stands out, however, a family with an especially long history as backers of the anti-trans hate machine. We are so glad to have Dick and Betsy DeVos with us tonight. Yes, that's Betsy, as in Trump's former education secretary and her husband. They were there in 2001. The presenter gives them the stage. They're already wired up and mic'd, and they're going to sit here, and then we're going to move the podium back, and we're going to have a conversation. Now, this interview gives rare insight into the ideology driving Betsy and her family. Is obtained by Politico. In it, Betsy talks about the importance of the religious fight for America. She uses the biblical term shephalia. It was the battleground between David and Goliath, between true believers and heathens in the Bible. That has been something that has been really impactful for both Dick and me, is to continue to think about where we can be um, the most the the most effective or make the most impact in the cultures and culture in which we live today. Um, and so, you know, our desire is to be in that shafala to um, confront the culture in which we all live today in ways which will continue to help um, advance God's kingdom. Some people, maybe even in this room, would say, um, why waste your dollars? 
on non-Christian things, just support Christian things? Why get involved in politics? Well, I think it goes back to what I just mentioned, the concept of really being active in the shafela of our culture to uh, to impact our culture in ways that um, that are not the traditional uh, funding the Christian organization route, but that really may have greater kingdom gain in the long run um, by changing the way we approach things. By changing the way we approach things. The Betsy we're hearing here isn't the buttoned-up, guarded education secretary, but it's the person behind that, the religious warrior who exhorts fellow billionaires and millionaires to join the fight. Hi there, I'm Amara Jones. Welcome to the anti-trans hate machine, A Plot Against Equality. Over the past three episodes, we've told you about the institutions that are doing the work of the anti-trans hate machine, churning out anti-trans laws and spreading hate across the country. Though they obscure their activities, if you look hard enough, you can see exactly what they're up to. You can stare the harm they're causing right in the face. But today, in the last episode of this season, we have to journey into the people who are hidden, the ones funding this machine. That means that we have to delve into the dark rooms where the anti-trans hate machine draws its power and strength. And it's in these rooms where a highly calculated movement has gotten the wealth and focus that it needs to spread all across the country. One of the people helping us into these out-of-view places is Heron Greensmith. Heron is a senior research analyst for Political Research Associates. It's a think tank. Now, senior research analyst is a bit of a snooze title, but in reality, Heron is a spy. Heron infiltrates the far right and the meetings that they have, like the Values Voter Summit. Their first Values Voter Summit was in 2018. The summit is an annual event hosted by the Family Research Council. That's the hate group which we investigated in episode two. Heron remembers exactly how they felt right before going the first time. I was so excited. I was just kind of like perversely like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what these folks are saying. Their excitement to me is so relatable and terrifying. Being a fly on the wall where people are plotting your destruction would be exhilarating. Blending in with this mostly evangelical crowd, however, isn't easy. Heron's agender and bisexual, part of their hair is shaved, and they've got tattoos that they can't cover up. So I wore sensible sneakers and pantyhose and a knee-length business skirt and then a cute little blouse and a cardigan And then I wore a necklace that had a heron on it flying that looked like a cross from far away. So you would think it was a cross. And with that, they went into the belly of the beast. I just got it so messed up. I I was dressed up for a different conservative denomination than evangelism, which in very specific ways reifies gender essentialism through dress. So when I got there, I saw that 
many of the older women were wearing very form-fitting dresses and high heels and had teased hair. And many of the younger women were wearing kind of like cool full-length trousers and flats and, you know, little twin sets. And I just looked like some kind of weird numb. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Even though they didn't quite hit the mark with their outfit, Heron was determined to learn everything they could. But not surprisingly, the first day of Heron's mission ended with something that hit them particularly hard, as it would so many of us. They had attended a gathering of LGBTQ Christian fundamentalists actively trying to suppress their sexual orientation and gender identity. And that's when it got hard, um, because a panel of speakers joined the stage and were talking about how they experienced same-sex attraction, but they knew that they could rise above it by prayer every day. And so many heads in the audience were nodding. And I was looking around at these beautiful young people who are part of my community. If you consider my broader community people who are not cisgender and or are not heterosexual. And I, I got filled up. That was it. That, that, was, that was the last bit that I could handle in my body. So I walked out. I couldn't do it. Seeing members of their community be at war with themselves at a conference opposed to their very existence was overwhelming for Heron. So they made it back to their hotel as fast as they could. They had to shake off everything that they had just witnessed. I ordered room service. I ordered an entire bottle of champagne. That's it. I took all of my clothes off. I pooped the biggest poop I've ever pooped in my entire life. I took a shower and I lay on my bed naked. And I was just like crying and crying and just kind of like purging my body of everything that was the conference. And then I felt ready to do the next day. Despite it all, Heron spent the rest of the weekend gathering intel at the summit. And that was when they got their first real glimpse of those behind the anti-trans hate movement. An unexpected billionaire made an entrance into one of the panel rooms. This little tiny woman walked in the room, very old woman with this like incredibly beautiful, you know, I guess I would say Chanel or Chanel-like suit. And there was like this murmuring, murmuring, murmuring. Every single person in that room, except for me, knew who she was. All of the parents, you know, who were there to oppose their local school non-discrimination policies, all of the church leaders, she just walked into the room and everyone knew who she was. It was Elsa Prince, one of the biggest funders of anti-LGBTQ hate in America. She's the matriarch of the wealthy Prince family dynasty and the mother of Betsy DeVos. Everyone knew who Elsa Prince was. And that buzz is what made Heron realize that billionaires were essential to understanding all of this. The money is woven in to this world. Elsa's now in her late 80s, but she's out there. 
she's not content to passively give her money. She wants to be seen as waving the flag on the barricades, encouraging others to follow her. And her daughter Betsy inherited Elsa's zeal. In fact, in almost all of these dark rooms, there's always someone from their family. It's an intergenerational network that funds the anti-trans hate machine. Here's Andy Kroll, an investigative journalist for Rolling Stone magazine. The DeVosses are not naive about how they spend their money at this point. I mean, they've been doing it for decades. To understand the influence of these families, we need to go back to February of 1979, to a church with stained glass windows and roses on the pews. As 21-year-old Betsy Prince, soon-to-be Betsy DeVos, walked down the aisle to marry 23-year-old Dick DeVos. These two families became one in what many called the wedding of the century. That's because this union represented a powerful merger of fundamentalist Christian wealth. DeVos's were new money, co-founders of the multi-level marketing company Amway. Some call it a pyramid scheme. The princes were old money. Their fortune came from manufacturing auto parts. But these two families had similar values, similar wealth, and were both from Western Michigan. And together, they would radically reshape American politics. I came to think of the DeVos family as the royal family of the Christian right in America. Andy Kroll says this marriage between Betsy Prince and Dick DeVos united two of the most influential families on the religious right. And in coming together, they multiplied their power. When you pull all that together, the merger of these two families, the money that they've spent, the commitment, if you will, to pushing this view of the world over so many years, there's no family that rivals the DeVosses on the Christian right. And that has a lot to do with Betsy. When she married into the DeVos family, she brought a level of sophistication and strategy that they didn't have before. To be clear, we're not talking about rich figureheads here, but a clan who uses their money to make things happen on the religious right. They aren't just major backers of the anti-trans hate machine. They helped build it. Betsy's father, Edgar, was a founder of the Family Research Council. Again, that's the anti-trans hate group we covered in episode two. Both the DeVosses and Princes literally funded that group's D.C. headquarters. Plus, there's a whole center funded by the DeVosses focused on anti-trans policy at the Heritage Foundation, which we explored in our last episode. It's called the Helen and Richard DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. And all of this is just scratching the surface of this family's influence. We are living now in a world that families like the DeVos family created. It's kind of infuriating sometimes. The family foundations of this clan have invested well over a billion dollars in their vision for the world over the last 20 years. At least $26 million of that funding has poured directly into the pieces of the anti-trans hate machine we've been investigating through this series. With all this money strategically placed, Betsy's family has been able to propel the right-wing movement into a totally different space. The way that they combine money, 
support for nonprofit institutions, political advocacy, and policymaking has become the model for the wealthy Christian right. Their power and reach mean that they're the gold standard for their peers like the McClellans of Tennessee, the Bolthouses of California, and the Wilkeses of Texas. And a secret way that many of these wealthy conservative Christians help fund the anti-trans hate machine is through dark money groups called donor-advised funds. One of the most consequential dark money groups is called the National Christian Foundation. And thanks to all that secret money from wealthy families, the National Christian Foundation is the biggest known single funder of anti-trans hate in America. Dan Stroud is CEO of the National Christian Foundation. Our team at NCF has has helped thousands of individuals and families discover ways to create what we call today a giving strategy. And we believe that a giving strategy is based on biblical principles. It helps you give with kingdom impact. It allows you to have a meaningful legacy. And it's essential to helping you design and explore God's unique story for your generosity. From 2015 to 2017, Just over the course of two years, the National Christian Foundation gave more than $55 million to anti-trans hate groups. As my team and I looked deeper at this dark money group, I was astounded that I hadn't heard of the National Christian Foundation before. Somehow, one of the 10 largest charities in the country that's been funding an incredible amount of hate has been able to fly under the radar. The National Christian Foundation spends more than a billion dollars each year. To put it in perspective, that's twice as much as the Ford Foundation, which is one of the biggest traditional foundations. But what's driving all these wealthy Christian people to invest so much in the anti-trans hate movement? As I pondered this, I kept going back to something Betsy said at The Gathering, That's the secret conference for wealthy right-wing Christians we explored at the beginning of this episode. Again, at the gathering, Betsy spoke about the religious battleground called the Shephalia, and she used it as a metaphor to tell other rich people that they had to get involved. Our desire is to be in that Shephalia, to um, confront the culture in which we all live today in ways which will continue to help um, advance God's kingdom. What strikes me here is that what she says is truly ominous. But she delivers it with such calm and such resolve. And it seems so out of character for billionaires to be this zealous, honestly. This focused. How in the world did this wealthy woman from Western Michigan arrive at this level of intensity? Sure, maybe it was because of her family, but how did they get like that? I asked a bunch of people this question for months. Finally, In an interview with Ann Nelson, I posed it almost as an afterthought. And I finally got an answer which made sense. Ann's an investigative reporter focused on the right-wing movement. I was wondering if you'd ever heard the recording of Betsy DeVos at the 2001 The Gathering panel that she did. Yes. And it sounds as if in many ways that she is a true believer And I'm wondering if that's your impression as well, or what's your impression about the degree to which she's actually attached to the things she's advocating? Let's look at Betsy as somebody who was born into this family in this religious enclave in a community where everyone around her and all of the information around her 
corresponds to this worldview. In their vision, God decides in, at the beginning of history who the winners and losers are. And if you're rich, it's because God has given, has, has graced you as being one of the people who is the elect, as they call it. And so that leads them towards a concept that, that is called dominionism, where because they're the elect of God, they should have dominion over all other human beings because God chose them, not you, as well as dominion over all living creatures and the earth. And if that is the only thing that you've been exposed to, it doesn't surprise me when, when that comes out of her mouth. That's her entire formation. Dominionists believe that we need to build the kingdom of God on earth for Christ to return. And these mega-rich Christians believe that their wealth is a sign that they've been chosen by God to prepare the world. To bring about God's kingdom, they must conquer seven mountains of society. No, literally, seven mountains of society is what they call it. They believe that they must take control of government, business, education, religion, family, media, and the arts. Basically, Dominionists seek to control the world, and they're prepared to do anything for Christ's return. To understand this strange, dark world and how it's fueling anti-trans hate, I reached out to Frederick Clarkson. He's a journalist who's been going undercover for more than three decades to keep tabs on the religious right. Frederick says to understand why they're funneling all this dark money, you have to understand how extreme Dominionists are. They understand that they're in a war, and some of it could end up being a physical war uh, in some respects. It's not necessarily that most of them uh, seek that, but they do understand that it's a, a possibility. Some think it's an inevitability. When Frederick said this, I was floored. I mean, in the worst way. And one of the most troubling things is how these extreme ideas have shaped our politics. The ideas of dominion has been, whether stated or unstated, have been the driving ideology moving the Christian right in the directions that it's gone uh, for decades now. And this is an ongoing trend, and it's going to continue. Until recently, this was not part of mainstream evangelical thinking. Once upon a time, evangelicals typically stayed out of politics. They believed it was too sinful. But that all changed with something called the New Apostolic Reformation. It's one of the fastest-growing branches of modern evangelicalism. Leaders of the New Apostolic Reformation teach that there's demonic control over government and society. Seriously. They believe that claiming dominion over the seven mountains is a key part of overcoming these dark forces. All of this is totally bizarre and unimaginable to most of us. But don't be fooled. Dominionists are growing in number, political sophistication, and political clout. You have to respect your formidable adversaries. You are putting yourself at a competitive disadvantage in the world of, in this case, politics and religion. And I think that uh, everybody to the left of the Christian right makes that basic strategic error all the time. And where does this aggressive anti-trans agenda fall in Dominionism and the New Apostolic Reformation? 
the, the, the new boogeyman, the new scapegoat um, that's a, a threat to uh, civilization, uh, Christian civilization as we've known it. It also seems that it's the thing that also unites all of the Christian right, right? So if you're Catholic, if you're evangelical, you know, Southern Baptist, like this is one thing that everybody can can literally get behind. And as I say that, it then makes sense that, that they've all kind of rallied around this issue because it is, it is a cross-cutting understanding, as it were. That's exactly right. And it brings about a unity that's hard, often hard to achieve. So having the common, common enemy and the common threat is, is essential, you know, in, uh, in a lot of aspects of politics, but particularly in this world. Now I know, this has all been a lot. We've gone to some places that most of us never knew about or want to think about. But to truly understand the power behind the anti-trans hate machine, there's just one more thing. There's actually one room where the biggest decisions get made, where the billionaires and the heads of the organizations that they run and the religious leaders all get together. It happens at something called the Council for National Policy. On paper, the Council for National Policy looks fairly small and insignificant. It meets three times a year and has a tiny budget. But it's where the wealthy and most powerful people on the right determine the priorities for the conservative agenda. And it's highly effective. It's this whole political operation of funding and media and strategy that that feeds into the Republican project, but is not answerable to the Republican Party. And in fact, it, it, it serves as an institution to pressure the Republican Party uh, and, and to move it dramatically to the right over the years. That's Ann Nelson, the investigative reporter we heard from earlier. She's also the author of a book about this powerful group called Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. And Ann says that Betsy DeVos's family have been big players in this dark room from the beginning. Betsy's father-in-law, Richard DeVos, used to be president of the organization. And Betsy's mother, Elsa Prince, is a decorated member who has served on its board. Anne says that all these influential leaders are the ones who decide which organizations get created, like those parts of the anti-trans hate machine that we've been speaking about throughout the series, and who's going to fund them. If they didn't have an organization that fulfilled a specific function, they'd invent it. They would, they would get somebody to found it and then fund it. And a very important part of their operation was to include major donors. Their ultimate goal is to bring about a religious government in America. And that's been in the works from the beginning. When Betsy's family and other right-wing religious leaders joined the Council for National Policy in the 1980s, they thought that the country was getting too liberal. They could see that attitudes about gender and sexuality were starting to shift. And they worried that fundamentalist Christian values would lose their hold on American life. So they plotted. They plotted how they could bring about a religious government in America, even as their ideology became unpopular. This is why the anti-trans agenda is front and center. Not only are the Council for National Policy members opposed to trans people on religious grounds, but they have found that using anti-trans issues is a way to motivate white 
rural voters to go to the polls. And because white rural voters show up in huge numbers, even in off-year elections, the Council for National Policy can use these voters to seize power. They conducted very active focus groups and polling to see which hot-button issues they could make them respond to. And often, it was done through untruth. I think that that's so essential in understanding why there's a push around um, particularly trans issues right now, because it seems very much in line with what you're saying, that it's about animating a specific group of people that they have found um, can help them retain power by turning out in the polls in marginal elections in parts of the country that are just not being paid attention to by Democrats. Absolutely. And it just, it's agonizing to watch. As much as the anti-trans hate coming from these dark rooms is a political strategy, it's also the goal. Our existence stands in the way of their vision for the world. In their mind, trans people don't belong in God's kingdom. So these leaders are using all that money and political strategy to try to eradicate us. But how do we make people believe that this is actually happening? I asked Heron Greensmith how they grapple with this. Heron spends their time seeing the unseen in this underworld. And as a person who infiltrates the anti-trans movement, including the Values Voter Summit, they're constantly sounding the alarm. And people, including trans people, struggle to hear it. I was talking to someone about this, and they said, well, how are you just going to convince people to keep listening? Because this just sounds like a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. I honestly was so caught off guard that I didn't know what to say. What do you say to people who say, this is just conspiracy theory? <sighs> I think I'm stressed about it because I don't know. I don't know that there is a good answer. I don't. I mean, are we afraid that if we that if we transition from an amorphous enemy that just hates trans people for some reason and changing hearts and minds will surely shift that to an enemy that is knowable, identifiable, and has a fuck ton of money? Is it almost too much to bear? Is that is that too much to to bear for people to truly awaken and and understand that we have knowable enemies to justice and democracy in the United States? I don't know. What's clear to me after the last year of working on this series is that these enemies, as Heron puts it, are waging a battle that goes beyond trans people. This fight is about who gets to define who we are. It's about whether our gender is assigned by God. We have to understand that in the worldview of the anti-trans hate machine, this divine order of gender is fundamental to everything. They believe that the division of the world into men and women each in their biblical roles, is the only way that God will return. And their faith 
is so structured around these patriarchal ideas that they're convinced that trans people are the ultimate threat to God himself, to his divine order. That's why they're throwing everything they've got into this fight. And it's why I think that this is just the beginning. They will stop at nothing to destroy anything that stands in the way of building God's kingdom. While trans people may not have the same resources, we do have our voices, and we are using them to fight for a totally different vision of the world, one with hope and possibility for all of us, both cis and trans. Our victory may not be certain, but nor is theirs. We can disassemble this machine by ripping the veneer of credibility off of everything that it does and by challenging its every move to take away our rights. The people we've spoken to for this series, like Lindsay, Phineas, Cecilia, Tanya, and Heron, are doing that. They're working to take apart this machine piece by piece. And that's what we all have to do in our own individual way, no matter how large or small the effort. You see, there's no overnight solution to make this decades-old, billion-dollar operation just go away. We have to grind it down little by little with the same persistence and diligence that was used to construct it. That's the only way to ensure its collapse. Thank you for joining us in this first season of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine. Yep, you heard me right. The first season. There'll be another. If you learn something or appreciate the work we're doing, it would mean a lot and help us get the word out to write a review on Apple Podcasts or share your thoughts on social media. The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality, is a podcast from Transnash Media. Before we get to the heart of our credits, I want to give a special thanks to Alex Koch. His reporting and insight into the National Christian Foundation helped us to understand the money behind the machine. This project is made possible with support from the New York Women's Foundation and the Heisig Simons Foundation. I'm Amara Jones, your host and executive producer. Oliver Ash Klein is our senior producer. Tyler Wilson, Annie Ning, Rubuth Fazinski, Callie Wright, and Jay McAuliffe are our producers. Audrey Quinn is our editor. Sound design and mixing are by Alexander Charles Adams. Montana Thomas is our production coordinator. And research is provided by Sydney Bauer. Jillian Brandstetter is in charge of communications, along with pivotal support from L Communications for this series. Our digital strategy is led by Daniela Capistrano of DCAP Media, Social media and production assistance are provided by Yannick Ike Mirko. Graphic and social media support are from Resistance Communications. Justin Klosko is our fact checker, and our intern is Jordan Marana. Our theme music was composed by Ben Draghi. Additional music courtesy of Matt Large, Mo Runa, Martin Landstrom, Lennon Hutton, and Alexander Charles Adams. Mm-hmm.